Um, and the abortion industry is certainly evil. I hope you don't mind me saying that. You know, that goes back to what Brother Charles said, that, you know, if it rubs you further the wrong way, you got to turn the cat around. <sighs> Today, we're, we're doing just that. We're celebrating Sanctity of Life Sunday. And you can see on the screen one of the reasons why we do that. In January 13th of 1984, President Ronald Reagan signed a proclamation declaring that on January the 22nd of 1984 that we would declare Sanctity of Life Sunday and we would honor and, and strive to protect uh, the unborn who cannot protect themselves. Um, that lasted eight years. And then we had a, a period of eight years when there was no proclamation. That didn't mean we didn't try to sanctify the life. It just meant that there was no official proclamation for the United States. And then there was a period of eight years when it was proclaimed again every January that the United States would celebrate the third Sunday in January and then there was another period of eight years when the president at that time chose not to make the proclamation and chose to disregard the unborn. And then last January, our current president renewed the proclamation, renewed the declaration to proclaim Sanctity of Life Sunday. I'll let you figure out uh, the two eight-year periods that we didn't have that proclamation. That's not, I'm not wanting to get into that. But just to say that this is an official proclamation, an official day that we set aside as a country by, by proclamation of our president and several presidents before him to declare that we believe life is sanctified and life is holy. Um, and I could have ranted, as I said earlier, about all the things about uh, what goes on. But I felt like the Lord wanted me to deal with value. So today, part of what we're going to do is be reminded of the value that God places on each human life. Each human life. Uh, and so, and then the third part about what we're going to do today is to pray that hearts will be changed to place the same value on all human life. Now, I believe in legislation. I believe that our legislators should do what they, sh they need to do. Uh, thank God that in Middle Tennessee, there are no active abortion clinics. None. Not even Planned Parenthood. I believe in th that the legislature, legislator, le legislature, that's easy for you to say, should do what they do. But let me just tell you, that ultimately, it has to be hearts. I, I, I don't have anything to do with that. And we have, we have, for the most part, good people and in a lot of cases, godly people on Capitol Hill of Tennessee taking care of that. And I don't get into that because that's not my world. This is my world. And my world says we need to pray for people's hearts to be changed. Because you can pass legislation and you can, and, and, and the truth is, 
over the since I forget what year, so I think since 1990, the number of abortions in America or maybe worldwide, I'm not sure, have decreased every year. But we still have over 60 million babies who did not see the light of day and and didn't even get a chance. So we need to pray that hearts will be changed. If you pray, if a heart gets changed, they don't need a law. Amen. They don't need a bill. And they don't need to, anyway, I'm not going to get into all that. Turn with me to Psalm 139. And don't tell a certain pastor in Georgia that I'm preaching from the Old Testament today. And some of you will get that. Um, this is a great psalm that deals with God's value of human life, with God's involvement with human life. And not only will we see today his, his interest in the unborn, but we're going to see his interest in you. Everybody say me. me. There's, a, there's a value that God places on you where you are and how you are. And far too many people in our society feel like that they were an accident or at the very best, they are unwanted. I want to show you from the scripture that's not true. That is, if you can put a mirror under your nose and it fogs up, I'm talking to you. Now, this is a little bit of a long psalm, and I started to read just part of it, but I couldn't find a place to stop. So stand as long as you can, but stand with me while I read Psalm 139. And I'm reading once again from the English Standard Version. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Would you read that verse with me? I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I am I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. 
Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You can be seated. God's intimate knowledge of his created humans. The psalmist begins in the first six verses by just sharing that with us. I'm not going to go back and read them. But he starts out by saying, you searched me and you know me. Or you searched me and I am known by you. The word search there, it really means to you, you examine me from the inside out. I want every person in this room to leave here today feeling like God knows you. You are unique. He cares about you. He has searched you from the inside out. And he has known you. I love it when we try to fool God. When we try to make ourselves look good to God. Because we can't. Because he has searched us and he has known us. He said, you know my thoughts. Now that's scary. Can I tell you the devil cannot read your thoughts? The devil is just a fallen angel and angels cannot, angels are not God. They're not deity. Now the devil can whisper and you listen, but only God Almighty can, can know what you're thinking. Psalm 9411 says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man. Now here's the good news. He knows our thoughts, and yet we have not been struck with lightning. We're still here. We're still alive. There are a lot of things that play into that, but don't miss the fact that he knows what you're thinking. And somebody's going, oh, I better clean up my thoughts. Yeah, right. He said, the psalmist said, you know what I'm going to say before I say it. Another scary thought. Because sometimes I don't know what I'm going to say until I say it. Have you ever had the experience of saying something and then start grabbing for the words, trying to get them back? Too late. God knows what you're going to say before you say it. Oh, Lord, there's so much here. Maybe I might need that 15 hours. Verse 8, he says, you hem me in behind and before. You hem me or you enclose me behind and before. The Hebrew word there basically just means to press upon. God cares so much about you. Everybody say me. See, this is today's message is not about the person sitting next to you, and it's not about the person that you're sitting there thinking, "Well, I wish they were here to hear they hear this." It's about you, and it's about me. God cares so much about you that He presses Himself upon you and encloses you and hems you in. 
So I don't want to be hemmed in. You want to be his kids. That's part of the package. That he would press himself upon you. I'm trying to show us how much God cares about each one of us. David continues, no escaping God's attention. He said, where, where can I go and hide? Where can I go that you're not there? And, of course, he lists a number of places. And, and every time, the obvious answer is nowhere. There's nowhere you can go to escape God's presence. Why? Because of the value that he places on you. Because of the value of your life. And that value did not begin when you were born. And that doctor whacked you on the behind. It began at the moment of conception. At the moment when life began, you... Well, your value was actually there before then. But the value that was upon is upon you as you, who you are today began at conception. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, can a, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him? <laughs> Declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Declares the Lord. Can you? And the Lord is saying, is there anywhere you think you can hide from me? Is there anywhere you can go that you think I can't find you? Is, is, there, is there a depth of evil so deep that you don't think I can go in, in there and bring you out? And, and obviously he said, I fill up the heavens and the earth. I can find you. And I don't mean just to find you, to judge you, and to whack you over the head. And sometimes we need that. But I mean to find you and to draw you out of wherever you are and give you redemption. In the moment. So he spends these first 12 verses basically telling us that he, he knows who we are. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words before we speak them. He reminds us that we cannot escape God because God cares about us and because we have value placed on us by God Almighty. And then he begins to describe how we came to be. I've entitled this God's Sovereign Choice. You could entitle it God the Knitter, K-N-I-T-T-E-R. But in verses 13 through 16, he deals with the process of our becoming what we call a human being. Some of you, if you don't get a birthday card from me every year, um, then you need to let us know your birthday in a mailing address. I write some quite often, and uh, people tell me, man, I really appreciate what you had to say in that birthday card. I said, well, please tell me what I said, because I'll write 20 at a time sometimes. I don't remember what I said, and I try to write something different for each person. But one of the things I often say in those cards is, this is the day that you celebrate God's wise choice in bringing you into the world. You see, it wasn't just a moment of passion with your parents that caused you to be here. It wasn't just an accidental thing that might have happened in a moment. But it was God Almighty who chose to bring you into this world, into this society, and, and make a gift of you to this world on that day. So when you celebrate your birthday, that's a special thing. That's the day God said, okay, this is the day that they will enter the world 
and began to grow into adulthood and even before then to make productive contributions to society. That's the day. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. You know, the science can tell us what happens in the womb, but they don't really know. And they'll tell you they don't know, the, 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 the uh, honest ones. They don't, they, we don't know exactly. We know what happens. We don't know exactly how it happens. And in, in these verses, as David describes God, he said, you formed my inward parts. He's recognizing that God was active, say active, active. in the unformed, what we would consider unformed substance that grew and developed in the mother's womb. That phrase is used again in verse 16, by the way. He was active. You know what active is not passive. Active, which means he laid his hands to what happened to you in your mother's womb. David says God did his knitting in your mother's womb. That's literally what the Hebrew word, this version uses that word. That's literally what it means in that verse, that God knit you. Everybody say knit. Did you know God was a knitter? He, I don't know what his knitting needles look like. Well, actually, I probably do. It's words. God knit you, you, in your mother's womb. In other words, while you were in your mother's womb, after conception, God began at that moment to form you, to knit you, and to create you to be, to be who you are today. Do you think he's interested in you? Here's the good news. God is omnipresent. He doesn't just do one at a time. Picture God in your mother's womb, knitting you, involved, active, and seeing you become a human being. He said, you formed me in my inward parts. He said, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I had you read that verse because I wanted you to make that confession. I wanted you to say it not about somebody else, but about yourself. Fearfully and wonderfully made, which really, by definition, and a little bit of Granger paraphrase, means I, I am set apart by marvelous things in my creation, which are designed to inspire awe and wonder. Set apart. You are unique. Now, some of us know that people are unique. I'll pick on my bride. She said, what's coming? I've told you all this before, maybe, but I tell people all the time when they talk about her uniqueness, that when God got ready to make my wife, he said, hey, guys, watch this. I'll pay for that. 
unique. But the truth is we're all unique because God made us unique. And he set us apart with marvelous things. And he says, my unfolding into a human did not escape the notice of the Creator. There is not a moment in while you were in your mother's womb, there was not a moment that God did not take notice of you. It, it, you know, it wasn't like, hey, I'll be right back. I got this really big case over here I'm working on. No, there was not a moment that God did not take notice of you in your mother's womb and was actively involved knitting and forming. And David says that. You, you didn't, you noticed. You're there. He said, my bones were not hidden from your sight or your handiwork. And the wording there, and I'll, I'll come, well, anyway, the wording there is the unfolding of a work of art or craft. I know some of you say, well, that makes sense. I, I know people who are crafty. Well, this is better than that. When, God, when it says God watched you unfold and helped you unfold, it's a work of art. As a matter of fact, in verse 15, the word woven. I always think of Ernest T. Bass when I see that word, but I'll refrain. The word woven there literally means, in the Hebrew, it means embroidered with various colors. Literally. So when you read in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you, or my bones is really what it means, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven or embroidered with various colors. Some have more of a colorful personality than others. But we're all embroidered in our womb by the maker with various colors. And then David recognizes that his days were formed before he ever had any. His days were numbered before he ever had the first day. Value. Only a God who sees extreme value in something would give that much attention through that process of knitting and forming to see that this person is birthed into the world as a viable human being. He goes even further about, about God's thoughts toward you. And, and we know Jeremiah 29, 11, which in the New King James says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. I know the thoughts that I think toward you. He says, How precious are your thoughts? How vast is the sum? If I could count them, they'd be more than the sand. Did you know God thinks about you? You know, I, you know, you hear crazy stories about people saying, you know, pray for them. You know, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm not hurting that bad. Pray for them. As if God can only touch one person at a time. Or as if God can only think of one person at a time. God thinks about you. Now, let's just, I know you hate this, but, uh, you know, just anyway, hate it anyway. But anyway, I want you to say God thinks about me. Okay, everybody together. God thinks about me. He does. He is. 
I didn't say he did. He does. He is thinking about you. And and uh, David points out that these thoughts that God has towards you are uncountable, are innumerable. An innumerable amount of thoughts. That just blows my mind. So we, could, we arrive at this idea then of our value. We see God's value of human life. And we see what God thinks of the unborn. Which is why we are so repelled by the idea that someone would take that life. That God is in the process of knitting. But what is our value? What do we think about human life? What is the value we place on human life? By the way, let me just say this. And I should have said this at the beginning. I know for a fact there are people under the sound of my voice that have either had an abortion or have been involved with someone who had an abortion. Let me tell you, listen carefully. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This message is not intended to, to bring condemnation or guilt or shame or any of that stuff. If you're receiving that from me, then I have misspoken. I want us to see God's value. And if, you, if you're one of those people, God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you. And, and I know sometimes I have I've obviously never involved in that. I, I, we used to stand outside of an abortion clinic when we first moved to Middle Tennessee on Saturday mornings, hoping to grab, not grab, hoping to talk to a young lady before she went in the door. And occasionally that would happen. And uh, I, I would watch boyfriends drop off their girlfriends and drive off. It was a discipline, I'll just confess, for me to not go yank that buddy out of that car and explain things to him. I just had no patience for that. To my man up. Oh, Lord, help me. I'm losing the anointing. Our society has been described as a valueless society or a society that has no values. Well, this is because we have a decay of values in our culture. We have mostly, we have abandoned God's standard, which is written in this book, his standards and his values. We've abandoned them and tried to adopt something else that feels better or makes more sense to us. I would say that we live in a value misplaced society because we all value something or we all value someone. We all do. You know that. We have we put value on something or someone. But often our priorities and the objects of our values are misplaced. And one of the things that has been devalued in our culture is the value of humanity or the value of human life. And I'm talking about the all stages. Obviously today is a day that we celebrate uh, human life and the sanctity of life. So we have to say that we have devalued uh, ch- human beings in the abortion of the unborn child. We would not murder a child in a womb if we saw value on that child. But there's also the issue of 
euthanasia, which is just convenience. Just get rid of the old people because they're in the way. And there are, you know, I pray none of us in this room, but there are people who just say, hey, when they get to a certain age and they get to be a certain burden, let's get rid of them. Let's, you know, let's get, let's get them out of here. Let's, let's protect, participate in some assisted suicide and remove these old people. You know what that is? That is a devaluing of human life. It's an attitude, all of these, by the way, is an attitude that says if it's in our way, let's remove it, even if it contains the breath of God. I told you this not long ago, but remember this. Everybody take a deep breath and exhale. What you just exhaled, what you just breathed, is the breath of God. God breathed on you, breathed on Adam, and breathed the breath of life into you, and man became a living soul in that moment. You breathe. Every human being on this terrestrial ball breathes the breath of God. And if you remember that, you'll treat people a little differently. Even Christians may sometimes be guilty of not holding the proper place of value for our fellow human beings. We would never say that. And we, we wouldn't even, those of us who would not, uh, do, who think that abortion is evil, sometimes even though we think abortion is evil, we treat human beings with less than value. All right, it's either amen or oh me. I have a, a little bit of a lengthy quote by Jack Hayford, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. If you're using the Uversion app on your phone or your tablet, it's on there. If you're not and you like it, email me and I'll send it to you. But anyway, this is a quote from Jack Hayford. It says, Fallen though he be, man is still deemed by the Almighty to be of immeasurable worth. Though incapable of saving himself, man as creature represents God's highest and best, made in his image and intended for his glory. In the light of Christ's will to spend his own life for man's redemption, an eternal insight into the worth of man from God's viewpoint is gained. In other words, Christ wouldn't die for us if we didn't have value. Thus, in our understanding, essential to personal growth and relational development with both God and man is a biblical perspective on the fundamental value of the individual, both in God's sight and in your own. Having created man in his image, God has invested unmeasurable worth in each human being or each being. His quest for the redemption of sinful, fallen man is evidence not only of God's love, but of his wisdom in working to retrieve that which is of infinite, Value to him. Infinite value. God continues to be involved with us after we're birthed into this world because we have value. We're living in sin and we're away from God and he still pursues us. Remember, Jesus said, you you didn't choose me. I chose you. You know, I told the guys a long time ago, the worship team, I would rather them not sing songs about I found Jesus. And we don't. 
because it's not true. We didn't find a thing. He found us. He saved us. He chose us. When you're, well, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. Do you feel valuable this morning? I'm going to close out real quick. I'm not going to turn. Luke 10 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're taking notes, it's Luke 10. When these robbers robbed this guy, poor fellow, beat him almost to death, threw him in the ditch, took his money, and took off. And along comes a priest who's walking down the road, which is an actual road, and he sees the guy, and he goes to the other side of the road, which means I'm not going to get near that guy. And then the Levite comes right behind him who would assist the priest in his ceremonies. And he, the Bible says that he saw him. It indicates that he walked up to him and saw him and then took off just like the priest. By the way, both of these men illustrate that religious work doesn't make the worker righteous. They were on their way to do their religious duties. And they didn't have time to stop. We'll get back to that. One of them was afraid of being ceremonially ceremonially unclean if it touched a dead body. The guy wasn't dead, but he thought he was. They didn't have time to take care of this guy. But along comes a Samaritan. And Jesus is, is uh, I love the way Jesus operates. He knows that the Pharisees that he's telling this story to and the Jews that he's telling this story to would never, ever associate with a Samaritan. He knows that they would never eat out of the same dish. Of course, I'm a little bit like that with you. But anyway, that's another story. (laughs) And anybody else. But anyway, but he knows that they would not associate. So he says, a Samaritan comes along. (laughs) Don't you just love that Jesus would do that? Knowing? And the Samaritan walks up to the guy and sees that he needs help. And he takes care of him and he does what he can for him. He puts him on his animal, his donkey, carries him to the local inn, gives the guy a pile of money and says, I got to go. I'll be back. And if he's used up all this money, when I get back, I'll give you some more. And he he goes and does what he's got to do. Now, the lawyer has asked Jesus what, what do I need? What's the great, Jesus said, what's the great commandments? And he said, the lawyer quoted rightly, love God, love man. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. From Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He's quoting, you know, he's a lawyer. He knows the rules. He knows the laws. He quoted them perfect. And, and Jesus said, well, then do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, but who's my neighbor? Do you, do you, uh, Encounter Christian people who are looking for a loophole? Usually it sounds something like this. Well, now, if you'll show me a Bible verse, give me a Bible verse, give me a rule. I'll obey the rule. Looking for a loophole. Then Jesus begins to tell this story. The lawyer who asked the question, in my opinion, he saw this man as nothing more than a name to study. The robbers who robbed him and beat him up, they saw him as a worthless human being. Worthless. The priest and the Levite, they saw him as a bother to avoid. But the Samaritan, 
He saw this guy as someone with inherent value and a neighbor to serve. So how did the Samaritan demonstrate value? Well, first of all, he showed compassion. I guess it was James that said, you know, don't don't tell the hungry guy be warmed and be filled, my brother. Give him a sandwich. I never can remember. What's the name of the screaming comedian? That's, he's dead now. Yeah, Sam Kennison. And first time I ever saw him, he's screaming and <clears throat> used to be a Pentecostal preacher back in his early days. I don't know how that works. But he was talking about in, at that time overseas, Ethiopia or somewhere, the cameraman was feeding, all, I mean, you know, filming all these hungry children, their big old bellies. And he's yelling into the microphone, which I'm not going to do. <clears throat> I'm not holding a microphone, but anyway, that's another topic. Why doesn't the cameraman give him a sandwich? Instead of just filming him hungry, and mm, why don't you just give him a sandwich? And and James said, you know, if he's hungry, give him a sandwich. Don't say be warmed and be filled. Go get him a Big Mac. How many of you know love, God's love, is... An action word. It's not a feeling word. Compassion is feeling the same passion that a person has for their hurt and pain. The same passion. Feeling it along with them. All three of these individuals in this story looked at this wounded man, but only one actually saw him. I think it's Matthew 9 when... In the New American Standard, it says, when Jesus saw the people, he had compassion on them. How many people do we walk by every day and we don't see them? We walk by, we engage with people, stores, whatever venues, and sometimes we get so busy and so active and so involved with what we're doing, we never even see them. This guy saw, the Samaritans saw him. If we recognize value in our neighbor, we should ask God to give us that kind of compassion for them. Do you believe there are any people around you who are hurting? And I don't mean in this room necessarily, but in your life. Are there anybody, is there anybody hurting? If they're not, then you live in Truman's movie, Truman Show. But there are people around you who are hurting. And so this guy not only had compassion, but he had a willingness to get involved. This is hard for me because I'm not the one to stop by the road and help people. There's no evidence in this story that this Samaritan ever considered not helping this guy. No evidence. And so he stopped at his own peril because there is no such thing as genuine love Without risk. You can say I love you. That sounds good. Sounds all well and good. That doesn't translate into some action. Then it's not real. It's not agape love. It's not. God, for God so loved. What's the next thing it says? That he gave. It's an action. Let me tell you something else. It's a little bit off topic. But without vulnerability. You can never experience the full effect of loving and being loved. 
If, if we shield ourselves from hurt, we will also shield ourselves from love. You can't put up the wall in a relationship with somebody because the wall keeps everything out. Well, so I'm, I just have the wall for them, but not them. It doesn't work that way. Because if you harden your heart, it's, your heart is hardened. You don't, you don't have a button you can press and drop the, the wall in that moment. Why are we talking about a wall this morning? We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be susceptible to being hurt, but you can't be loved unless you're susceptible to being hurt. I know you don't want to hear that, but truth is truth. He also showed the man mercy. Once again, mercy is not just a nice word. Mercy, defined accurately, is active compassion. When your compassion motivates you to give the child the sandwich, that's active compassion, and that's mercy. He made his animal and all of his other resources available to this guy. And when that happened, compassion became an active, everybody say active, reality. And the last thing is that he stopped what he was doing. (laughs) He stopped what he, he was on his way somewhere. He wasn't just wandering around aimlessly. He was going somewhere and he had something he had to do and somewhere he had to be, but he stopped it. Because he saw a fellow human being in trouble and he saw value in that human being. The question is, are we willing, this is an oh me to me, but are we willing to be inconvenienced when confronted with a God-ordained opportunity to stop what we are doing and offer assistance to a wayward soul upon whom God places supreme value? So I'll, I'll brag on my pastor. Several years ago, he was going home, got off the exit at the interstate, and he saw a car off the ramp parked. And he said, oh, Lord, help those folks. And he turned left and went towards his subdivision, and God said, "Nah, why don't you turn around and go back and help them? I don't know how he must have backed down the ramp. I don't know. But anyway, he went back arguing with God, but he went back to where they were and he said, you know, I give them a jump, you know, jumper cables or whatever they need. And, and, uh, they said, well, our, it won't start, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay for it to be towed to the nearest service center that we can get it. You can get it worked on. So they did that. He followed them there. They towed it in thinking, you know, who knows what it could be. Well, they need a new engine. And he said, be warmed and be filled. No, he didn't. (laughs) He paid out of his pocket for them to have a new engine. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm bragging on him. But the point is, how many of us are willing to do that? And I, I can tell you, I'd be slow. I can just tell you, but are we willing to be inconvenienced? Because when you see that family in that van beside the ramp, do you see value in that van? I'm not talking about the van, but the people in the van. 
There's some value on the van, but it's going down every day. But there's people in there that have high value. You say, well, if I knew they were Christians, don't go there. Don't go there because I've already told you they don't care who they are. They got the breath of God in their lungs. That's what you do with that. Yeah, we're ticking down here. (laughs) Summation. God searched me. He knows me. He knows my thoughts. And he still fellowships with me. God is actively involved. Say actively. In my journey. He knows what I'm going to say before I do. He surrounds me in close proximity for protection, correction, and direction. There's no escaping the all-knowing eyes and hand of the Lord. We were thought of and formed by Almighty God in our mother's womb. Our days were ordained and planned before one of them was lived. And finally, God's thoughts towards us are highly esteemed and innumerable. (coughs) Value. God's value on human life should be our value. God's value system should be our value system. Again, I didn't bring this message today to make anybody feel bad or to feel condemned, but to remind us of what God thinks of human beings, beginning with conception. Would you agree with me? Stand with me.